0: and grow the industry around the world. So for today's podcast, we've got a really interesting episode uh, lined up. This is a a technology area that I'm asked about all the time. So I get questions on a very, very regular basis, asking me uh, for the, the sort of future prospects, what's happening and when will we see it on the market? And and of course that's solid state batteries. So we're very very lucky to have John Tenson uh, from Illica who's agreed to join us and uh, and talk to me about solid state batteries. So good uh, good morning. Good to have you here, John. Good morning, Ryan. A real pleasure to be on your uh, podcast. And and actually, people will notice hopefully that the audio quality is slightly better than usual. And John is actually here <laughs> in the flesh, so uh, we're properly face to face. So hopefully the audio will work out a little bit better this time. So. Uh, John, if, if we could just get started, and you know, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background and and sure. how you came to be doing what you do now.
1: Yes, as ever, it's a, a journey that. Uh, um, okay, I'll, I'll explain. The physics was the subject, so I went to Birmingham University to uh, to study physics, and really with no great understanding of being a scientist. It was more about. It seemed a very useful kind of degree that uh, could be put to many different purposes. Yeah. Um, but I was quite a commercial person even then. So uh, uh, the intention, I, I guess, was to move in a, in a commercial domain with that physics degree. Um, and that, that's pretty much what happened. I, I came out and uh, went into actually test and measurement. Um, some of older viewers may remember AVO, amps, volts, and ohms, okay. or, or even <laughs> mega. Um, and actually, I was African sales manager for about uh, four or five years, which is great as, a, as a, uh, a, a young person being the ability at that age to travel around virtually every country in Africa. Oh, wow. uh, uh, trying to intercept sort of government funding and, and uh, do the electrification and telecommunications um, of, uh, of African countries. And uh, I say it was a great sort of uh, grounding in export. And uh, yeah, over the few years, did a number of other regions, Latin America, the Middle East, etc. cetera. So uh, that was a, a lovely start to a, a selling career. And it's always been for me about international and it's always been about batting for Britain, I guess, uh, taking British technology and, uh, and getting it placed overseas. Um, from there, though, uh, fairly, you know, five or six years after that, um, uh, went on to uh, a company called CFAM, which is photonics in, in particular. Okay. Um, and here, uh, I guess, more using the physics side of things, we were looking at subsea. This is this is the days where, um, uh, I guess, the internet was just uh, coming through. Um, we needed to, to solve the repeaters issue um, of how you would take a signal from the UK to America. At, the point, at that point, I guess, you could only um, electronically repeat every 100 or so kilometers. So there's many, many repeaters across the uh, Atlantic. Yeah. But with photonics, uh, the idea was every 600 kilometers, um, so dramatically reducing. And, and the, the key thing is, could you keep the signal in optics and not take it out of, uh, you know, you had an optical cable. Uh, could you um, take it sort of um, uh, and amplify it in optics? Now, as it happened, and as it sort of connected later on, Pirelli in Southampton were working quite a lot in that uh, in that space. Um, and uh, yeah, we, I was in Torquay at a company called CFAM, uh, but there was technology called the erbium-doped fiber amplifier that was being created for this sort of um, photonics. Um, that rolled uh, off you. the erbium
0: doped erbium doped fiber amplifiers amplifier. as well, okay. a way of
1: amplifying uh, fi- a fiber optics light within the fiber. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and uh, so we worked on components. We were working on tap couplers and multiplexers at, uh, at CFAM, but uh, did very well. So well, in fact, that uh, it was bought for a large sum um, and uh, life moves on. So yeah. the, the next uh, uh, for me was actually up in Glenrothes of uh, all places. So this was a move from Torquay, um, where the CFAM company was, yeah. uh, up to Glenrothes uh, in, in Scotland. And here it was cabling. Uh, it was a mi- mixture of um, uh, optical and uh, copper cabling. But uh, uh, my business unit that I headed up uh, at this time I was um, about a 60 million. Well, it, it was started off smaller than that, but about a 30 million pounds business unit, part of BICC, ah, British, okay. British Insulated Calendar Cables. Yeah, the company is called Brown Rex. And um, what a good time to arrive because we had a, a, a optical capability at a time when the world wanted an optical capability. Yeah. Uh, so we sort of created a, a telecom unit within my business unit. And uh, we went crazy, doubled the turnover from 30 to 60. Um, and this was at the time when we were rolling out across you know, the canals and, and railways and roads of the UK, right. um, optical cabling. Um, and, uh, but also we were in our uh, business unit putting uh, copper cabling onto things like the Stukar submarines, the Type 42 destroyer, the Eurofighter and uh, and also some catalytic converters into cars so a very interesting oh, wow. time we were doing yeah. special effectively it was a speciality cabling business unit yeah. um and so you got involved in lots of interesting projects and
0: uh a big move from you know so talkie at one end of the country to benroths at the other end uh that's quite a, a big change Did, uh,
1: i was helped there as my wife had um, been educated in in edinburgh, edinburgh and had friends okay. in edinburgh uh, we lived in. We moved to South Queensbury, which is just across the uh, the bridge from Edinburgh. Yeah. So it felt pretty comfortable. Uh, I did have two young girls at the time, um, yeah. and um, uh, so they they were preschool age. Uh, so it's not so hard to to move them up. And we were moving up to people we knew. And, yeah. and my mother was from uh, Edinburgh. Ah, okay. Uh, so, uh, so There's family, it's, it's family yeah. there. So yeah. It was a good uh, a good time. And uh, I'm a particular keen hill walker and and uh, I like climbing. So right what what's not to like about a playground called the you know, the Scottish mountains
0: yeah, yeah, fantastic a little bit uh, a little bit cooler than
1: uh we did notice that we <laughs> didn't, we didn't use our back garden very often right yeah yeah <laughs> so uh again five or six years um in in this uh, uh environment uh but telecom then went into reverse um uh yeah this was this was the sort of the crash, I guess 2003 2004. Um, at that time, there was a bit of a, uh, well, hell of a dip in in, um, in that sector and in many other sectors as well. Um, so the company was downsizing quite dramatically. Uh, it had already been sold. Uh, BACC had sold it to a company called Novar, now part of Honeywell. Yeah. Uh, but the company was downsizing. And um, uh, I began to look for what my next um, opportunity might be. And I was headhunted at this stage, um, a company uh, in Hedge End in Hampshire, uh, who were uh, just forming or actually had had formed, but they were repurposing. Um, and this was a company called SPI, um, which was a photonics company. And their idea, and this is where the sort of circle met, was that you could use this uh, technology for erbium dope fiber amplifiers, but actually you could create a laser from it. Uh, oh by wow. putting Bragg grating mirrors on either end of the um, of the amplification stage, yeah. uh, you could then create a laser. And the point was being lasers at that time were... Instruments of last resort in the manufacturing sense if you wanted to cut metal weld metal or, yeah. or mark things You tried it every other way and if you couldn't then you used a laser and <laughs> yeah. that's because you needed sort of PhD guys fiddling with mirrors to um, To operate lasers on factory yeah. floors. So the, the plan was to create a black box solution that needed no maintenance It was a sealed unit, right? Only two companies in the world had the technology um, this was the um, uh, intellectual property that we got out of Southampton University, but there was a Russian company called uh, IPG Photonics that also c- uh, had their technology. Um, yeah. A guy called Valentin Kapontsev. Um, and uh, so there's uh, so only two people doing this and um, very early stage um, activity. Uh, we created those lasers um, and uh, uh, it, it initially very low power, but we over the years rose to. Thousands of watts of power within a yeah. single-mode uh, fiber, uh, nine-micron fiber, uh, and now it's pretty much become the way that uh, uh, metal is cut, or or welded, or or marked. It's it's now the dominant form of of, um, of uh, laser technology. Uh, along that journey, I mean, we did the we were VC-backed. California VCs was the original uh, SPI lasers. Uh, then we did a bit of flotation on AIM, um, and uh, uh, yeah, then it was sort of pension funds which. A uh, uh, lot of maintenance on the AIM market, um, a lot of overhead for the uh, CEO and the executive team, but in the end, a trade sale to a company called Trump, uh, which is one of the biggest machine tool companies in the world, but obviously also one of the biggest laser companies in the world. Yeah, um, very, very good. It was very interesting dynamics there, being bought by a German company, who are, uh, as typical with German companies, although they were three billion in um, revenue, they were privately owned with no debt.
0: Oh, um, yeah,
1: yeah. What a what a great company, uh, right. and what a great attitude to manufacturing and to looking at how things should be done, and and look, taking a long term view. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was an education in its own right. Sort of uh, um, one of the aspects of it. We were struggling at SBR Lasers to to make a profit, but we simply couldn't turn over enough product without adding more staff. We hadn't really cracked that cycle of of you know, the overheads kept growing in proportion to the um, output. Yeah, um, we never seem to be finding the break even even though we we're going up in turnover by tens of millions We were never finding the break-even point, right? Yeah, um, the acquisition by the Trump laser um, They came sent a team across uh, called a synchro team who showed us how to get three times the output from the same number of staff um, And that was I say an education um, Which obviously broke the cycle and we managed then to become profitable Wow. Um, but uh, we were seen as enabling to their machine set. They obviously had lasers, but they had um, lamp based um, uh, lasers and, and um, they wanted this new fiber laser technology because it was seen to be the, the future. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were seen to be an enabling um, technology for them. And they were selling their machine tools for four to five hundred thousand euros for a cutting machine. Yeah. You know, so putting uh, an advanced laser on it would help that sale process and therefore be highly valuable to them as a, as a company. And it's,
0: it's ama- actually, you say, commonplace. I mean, it re- really is. And in the EV industry, in particular, laser welding and uh, joining is used in, in a lot of different places uh, and, and actually has enabled things. So things like uh, hairpin motors probably wouldn't really be possible without the ability to do uh, very clean laser welds, uh, large format battery packs, so laser welding of tabs to cells, very Exactly, dissimilar metal welding was not an easy task if you wanted
1: to join sort of copper and aluminium or or other sort of um, more exotic materials. Um, It was hard using traditional laser technology, but the the sort of beam, the Gaussian distribution beam uh, coming out of a single mode fiber of a fiber laser uh, led to much higher intensities. Um, and, and also you could play around with waveforms to create effects. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, as you say, an enabling. One of the early things we did actually was putting the um, Apple logo and the wording onto the um, uh, iPhone. That was our... <laughs> right, okay. Uh, this was all done <laughs> by Foxconn. Um, yeah. And uh, our, the biggest orders we had in the early days was we, we developed a particular uh, way of marking using our fiber laser that was very attractive. I remember we actually pitched it, or I pitched it to Johnny Ives in... in um, in Apple, and okay, yeah. um, uh, we spent about a year. We, we put a our own development center into California to, to simply to develop the mark, the mark, the way things could be marked, with the idea that we would attract Apple. That was always oh, wow. a, a key okay. target. Yeah. Um. And in and in the end, we got those orders, and then we that helped us to build our Chinese business because all of that activity actually takes place in China. Yeah. In Foxconn factories that typically have three to four hundred thousand staff. It's a different world out there and yeah. um and we got us into a company called hands laser um now one of the biggest laser companies in in uh, in china but when we started dealing with them that wasn't the case um and uh they were putting the you know the marking machines initially but then it went on to welding machines as well yeah uh, into the foxconn factories
0: it does um just sort of circling back a little bit it, it strikes me like a lot of people and i know a lot i, I talked to a lot of younger people um and actually be worried about doing a physics degree because it's quite you know they see it as almost being limiting um and, and and to a certain extent i might have thought that as well you know maybe engineering a bit more you know if you're that way inclined mech eng sort of more application based but your career at this point is a a real example of actually you know what an amazing uh, platform to, to go from that uh, that founding in, in physics had become.
1: I, I totally know. agree. Uh, and it, I think if you were a mechanical engineer, then if you're in a meeting, people tend to know what you know. You're a mechanical engineer, therefore you must know these things. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I typically obviously spend most of my time spelling, selling to uh, heads of engineering, chief scientific officers, CTOs, etc. cetera, uh, the technology of whatever company I, I'm at. But what they don't quite know is what I might know. Um, <laughs> because as a physicist, you know quite a lot fundamentally. Yeah. Um you, know, you you may not know things in the way that an engineer would I can't construct something necessarily but I can understand a technical concept. Yeah. Uh, and it even does roll over into sitting in more recent times I'm I'm sitting with chemists because I'm now in the battery domain. Yeah. electrochemists. Um but but they also respect what a physicist might know about a situation. If you typically if you give a physicist the fundamentals of something they get a good grasp of that. Yeah. They may get lost after that in the detail because it's not you know, they haven't specialized but uh, yeah. even within physics there was many modules there was semiconductor modules and and you know other um, yeah. uh, you know uh, quantum physics etc so you were able to study you know five or six seven different modules of physics wh- which took a bre- breadth of knowledge um, and I've always found that that uh, yeah, people have had a great respect, and I, I would actually really encourage people to see physics as a great business degree, mm. because it, it's just a foundation. And after that, in effect, you're you're doing whatever you do for your for your career. Yeah. But actually, you've just got this very solid foundation.
0: Yeah, I I, I would uh, I always tease my economist or accountancy friends, you know. Uh, if you go and study economics or accountancy, that's you're going to be an accountant. You can't go and be a physicist if you study accountancy. Whereas uh, if
1: you study physics, you the could reverse be, works. <laughs> you could yeah. be that accountant if you chose to be so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you you then you then made the the sort of jump out of um, laser technology into solid state batteries. No, no,
1: there was one in between, Ooh. and this was. Um, I mean, uh, I, I realized along the way that I liked early phase companies. I liked helping yeah. a company. From its early days through to a particular point, but I had worked in large corporations. Yeah, you know, I said British Insulated Calendar Cable (BICC) was a multi-billion-dollar organisation, and of course that comes with a certain overhead in in politics or structure or form, formality. But also an overhead in you get a very narrow focus because there are many people like you, and your your remit is is narrowed down in a large organisation. In a small organization as in the spi lasers you initially are you do everything you 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 have to get involved in every aspect of that company because the company might only have 10 20 30 people um, as you're growing it and that's fun it's worrying but you don't always know you're going to get paid next month but it but it's fun (laughs) um so i realized that that was what i like to do um but i remember also listening and this was a uh, i had to drive um to work and i was listening thinking the UK industrial sector is rather small. I think it's 10 to 15% of the UK economy is, is manufacturing. The other bit, you know, there's a farming element and then there's a retail element. Um, but there's also this um, consultancy element or services you know, yeah. um, element, which is the larger element of the UK economy. And I did wonder, I, I guess I was coming to my 50s thinking, I wonder if my skills are transferable. And I've always had a, a thing about transferable skills. If you believe you have transferable skills, you're never going to be worried about being out of work. Because yeah. you can always apply those skills to another sector, yeah. and I'd always worked in manufactured product right from the beginning, from the Avo days. We'd always made a widget and we'd sold a widget. Mm. Typically, we'd sold that widget overseas, but I did wonder whether I could sell um, a service. Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, it happened that the. Uh, Ex-CEO of CFAM, uh, who I still mountain bike with, still even to this day, I go mountain biking with him, we're still friends. Uh, he was also chairman of um, uh, a semiconductor design company called Sondrell. Um, okay. And he recommended that they were seeking a, a VP of, uh, of sales and marketing. And um, uh, yeah, he was saying, yeah, would you like to apply? So you know, he didn't give me the job, it was a proper application. Um, But it ended up, they've got about um, 200 uh, design engineers designing sort of uh, the physical layout. It's called the the, the sort of verification and layout of a chip. Yeah. So this would typically be an advanced node, Um, you know, the time 9 micron. Uh, na- so nine nanometers not microns yeah. nine nanometer design yeah um and uh, you know it could take one to two hundred people to um uh do the actual um uh, you know, design and verification and physical layout of a chip like that, and it can oh, take wow. two to three years yeah to do that and and this company Sondrell, um probably foremost in the well, definitely foremost in the u k quite unique actually um deployed that level of resource, so often the customers were in Israel yeah. Very seldom were they in the UK. The UK doesn't tend to design that level of chip. Uh, but they, you know, customers could be in California and, and often they're in Israel. Yeah. Um, and they were um, either they had a team, but the team wasn't of a large enough size and they wanted to start their next chip, or they had no team and they were virtual and they wanted to uh, develop that chip. Yeah. And so they would call um, Sondrell in. And, and effectively, we were um, renting out, uh, you know, so, you know, using services, we were renting out our, our skills and, right, uh, right. as a engineering team i did notice even in the five years i was there there were fewer um uk-based engineers yeah, our headquarters um had fewer and fewer uh, uk-based engineers um and um so therefore we had to seek uh, engineers overseas initially we took over a design center in morocco that had been um people at ST microelectronics had been released and we oh, took wow. over that design yep. team and then we went on and did the same in india um, and uh, we also always had a design team in in uh, China, in Xi'an, in China. Um, so
0: that's a good spread, that is a good it?
1: spread. It did allow for kind of round the clock working, which, yeah. you know, in terms of follow follow the sun, they call it, you know, <laughs> where where you can get sort of design teams handing across and handing across. So yeah. you're using more of the 24 hour clock, um, but it, it also meant we could connect with um, the the semiconductor industries in China, yeah. uh, in Europe, um, etc. So. It was fascinating the, the, you know, for me, you know, uh, you know, moving into selling a service, selling people's time um, and, and skills, um, and also for me to understand semiconductors. Uh, I had, as part of my physics, studied semiconductors, but this was really understanding, you know, me having meetings with TSMC, having meetings with um, Intel and, and um, Infineon and, and um, you know, the, the large uh, um, Marvel and you know, all of the yeah. big chip companies. Um, seeing because they're in everything. Every single product we look at has got a chip in it. Yeah. Um uh, You know, even in the audio industry, you know, um, uh, again, products and their mixed signal products and in, in, in everything. So, you know, just to really understand how things came about, how products came about, from that perspective, yeah. probably uh, over my career, every product I have worked in had a chip, but I just ignored it because hey, it wasn't my area. Yeah. My area was different. <laughs> yeah. But now this was my area, so it, it was five years, and again learning a lot um, but uh you know, again i actually realized that two things th- this was a much more mature company again um yeah. and uh so what hadn't got that early stage feel to it um and uh an opportunity came up very close to home actually the the laser thing sorry the, the semiconductor thing had been an hour or so's drive each way uh, to get to the office yeah and an opportunity came up with Illica, who are literally you know 10 minutes around the corner from where i live who are early stage um, and you know, was going to really clearly use some of the skills that I had already developed in early stage companies and in technology companies. And, uh, uh, and they were at a very interesting point themselves. They were at a point of pivot. They weren't at that time necessarily seen as a, uh, a solid state battery company. Um, oh, really? Because for the first, they span out of Southampton University, uh, I think in 2004, um, and their idea was material science. They, they were helping large companies with using co-evaporation and sputtering techniques to do layers of of, um, of uh, material deposition onto uh, wafers and then study the uh, those materials and the compositions and really trying to create sort of intellectual property of material science for oh, large wow. organizations. Yeah. Um uh, and they had a at some point in their history they had an ARM guy as their chairman and so IP was fundamental to them. Yeah. And uh, so you know that that was really, you know, for twelve or so years of, of the life of uh, of Ilica, that was their business. It affected you might call it a very high end consultancy. Um yeah. they were working for, you know, c- could be large OEMs. They they did work for Toyota in I think that was as early as about 2008, 2010, uh, they created intellectual property in battery electrolytes for Toyota. Um, so they had the capability to do that, but yeah. that wasn't their main mission. Their main mission was to, to simply um, help companies to develop new materials and, new, and, and understand the properties of those materials. So they had a, a rig um, uh, both at the university and at a campus, which was um, uh, a university industrial campus, where the spin-outs go. But uh, along that, they, they also had developed a thin film demonstrator, um, sort of generation one micro battery, about a centimeter by a centimeter. Right. Um, and uh, this was to demonstrate that you could make a battery, a solid state battery, a purely solid state battery, out of depositions onto a glass wafer. Um, uh, but it hadn't necessarily been seen at that time as that was where the business would totally go. Yeah. Although it was definitely evolving in that direction quite strongly. Um, And then they had, I think just at the point I was joining, they applied for grants uh, from the Faraday Battery Challenge under Innovate UK, um, uh, where they said, well, we've got this thin film uh, uh, battery technology. Potentially we could upscale it to um, inks and and a larger industrial scale, and it might then be applicable to um, uh, electric vehicles. So they they had three um, uh, projects awarded to them um, with three OEMs. Uh, three car OEMs Um, and each of those looked into slightly different aspects but overall the idea was to create a pouch cell for the electric vehicle sector Um, I think they got about um, six million in funding Wow! probably part of that was um, was uh, uh, the money Ilica put in itself but uh, but there was uh, there was funding and those three projects and that allowed them to create a dedicated facility and now for the first time you know the Ilica that we see today is emerging they now create a totally dedicated team and a totally dedicated facility to the study of electric vehicle pouch cells. Um, and uh, that was about two to three years of, of activity um, and brings us more in line yeah. with where we are today, I guess. But, but the company also decided at the time to also pursue and industrialize its micro batteries. So these are okay. um, depositions, thin film depositions onto uh, a glass wafer, six inch glass wafer. Um, and these would be used in the, particularly, implants into the medical sector. Um, so here, uh, the idea of making a battery on a millimeter scale. Uh, now, if you look at medical devices at the moment that go inside the body, it could be a heart pacemaker or it could be an um, impulse generator for nerve stimulation. They're typically a large battery with some small electronics um, because the battery needs to last a number of years. Yeah, I think 85% of the batteries in the body are primary batteries. Um yeah. And so um, uh, there's only about two or three places in your body that you can place a large battery. It's in the heart space <laughs> and in the buttocks. Yeah. Um, and so it's very, um, you know, a big operation to actually get a, a battery into your, get a, a medical device into your body, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, the, the device itself might only cost two or three, $4,000, but the, getting it into the body is is a factor of 10 of that. Yeah. And so the idea is, is this could be a market ready for disruption you know, what if you could make a much smaller device that you could charge much more quickly because even the 15% of medical implants that are are, um, rechargeable batteries, you tend to go to your doctor's surgery to get them recharged because they can take one to two hours, as you know, C rate of C over two or maybe even at best a C rate of one. Um, So you can't really trust somebody at home. They might not sit still enough they might not do it properly <laughs> yeah. um, so you go to your doctors you sit there for a couple of hours you recharge the battery and that's how it's done so the thesis here is if you could charge in 10 to 15 minutes using an inductive thing that you're holding to your body if you can plant a thing in a much nearer to the skin um, because it's actually a much smaller device you could really change the way people perceive medical devices and and this was helped by the fact that there's been a big crisis in America the op- opioid crisis where people generally do have pain. I mean, maybe the feeling is, oh, they're all addicted to drugs. We should take them off the drugs. Uh, no, they do have pain as well. So you can't just say, stop taking the drugs. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's been a, a big study, a bit a lot of money and investment in how do you address this subject. And one of the things is is like a TENS machine. Many people have, uh, uh, when they had their partner was having a baby years ago, they had a, a pain blocker, which is okay, a, a device yeah. they wore around the waist that just, they turned it up, and it blocked the pain. Yeah. Well, we're talking about things the size of a pill that do the same—that um, block the pain. Oh wow! Okay. And then there's been many uh, studies into the vagus nerve, for example. You've got these arterial nerves inside your body, um, and the, the, these—you can—you can work on epilepsy, you can work on dementia, you can work on on um, even eating disorders. They're all impacted by tiny impulses of energy imparted to the arterial nerves in the body. Mm. Um, the vagus nerve being a, a classic. Um, whereas lower back pain, another uh, real use of why people might be on opioids, uh, can be spinal cord stimulation. So yeah. there's a whole new branch of medicine, uh, bioelectronics, um, where, where people are looking at what if we stimulate various nerves in the body, what effects will we get? But one of the requirements of that is to make these devices a lot smaller, a lot cheaper to implant, um, a lot less invasive. And, um, and and therefore, you're going to need a next generation of batteries. Yeah. And so. Illuka's decided to focus on that for its uh, micro. It's called the Steriax side of its business, um, but it focuses on that.
0: Because you sort of, am I right? You've kind of split the company into two divisions.
1: It's one oh. company. It's two. It, we haven't really formalised them business units, but okay. actually they're totally different sites on totally different teams. Okay. So it may as well be so business so units. So two divisions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, uh, uh, and they're doing quite different things because all, all they're both solid state, both fully solid state. Uh, but I said one of them is making thin film depositions onto a glass wafer. It's just yeah. a sort of co evaporation techniques and sputtering techniques, very similar to semiconductor. Yeah, We had hopes that we were simply going to use um, semiconductor resources that the UK already had, um, yeah. you know, six inch fabs that were in the UK. But because of our lithium, um, the CMOS factories were quite clearly not very keen on that. Um, yeah. It might have destroyed their yield, and and uh, that's that, you know, they've got a high volume process. So we realized that we were probably going to have to set up our own fab. And we did a money raise where I forgot to mention, but Illica's on the AIM market. Um, it's a listed company. Um, and in 2020, I think it actually uh, just as lockdown was happening, we were doing a, a money raise purely in relation to the stereax side of our business so that we could afford to build a fab um, and also fund the development through to industrialization, which is where we are now. Right. Um, and uh, I think the money raise was about 15 million pounds. And um, um, we're now you know, year 2022. We're now in, uh, industrializing, bringing our generation two product to market. But the key thing is bringing it to market on industrial equipment, yeah. because it had been developed on university equipment, and there's a big difference between the two. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, we've now you know, so bought a set of industrial equipment, got multi-thousand wafer capacity, and we're now transferring the technology that we developed at the university onto that equipment, and then later on in the year the product will come out. But it will still take some time to get into the body uh, because, you know, uh, FDA compliance. We're speaking to companies who have to go through, you know, very strict compliance and test. So, you know, it'll still be two, three, four years. But areas that I think might come first might be smart orthopedics, for example, where um, people are getting knee and hip implants and a percentage of those don't take. But actually, if you leave it too late before you find that they don't take, the cost of extraction is extraordinarily high. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you can understand early that the bone growth isn't happening, there's a pressure or a hotspot, you can intervene, and it's a lot uh, uh, cheaper operation. Oh, wow, So what they want is a Bluetooth-enabled sensing device inside the knee or hip implant (laughs) that that sends information to your phone that then sends information to your doctor. Your doctor phones you up and says, you better come in. Um, And this is actually much quicker to market because this is not a life uh life or death type um yeah uh, yeah activity I,
0: think I should wait for I, I just found out i've got a knackered hip actually yeah uh, oh, well. so um you i'll, I'll well wait be until having a smart device it's called hip. smart orthopedics uh, yeah, and like it's going to be device. the next
1: generation of orthopedic devices
0: that makes a lot of sense yeah so so the the, the micro battery side of things you you, know, you clearly said it's a material deposition process onto a wafer so am i right because because there's there's quite this generic term solid state batteries but it, there's quite a few sort of subclasses of solid state so would that be what people commonly refer to as a ceramic um, solid state battery where you've you've got that
1: kind of structure is that well even on the larger scale they become ceramics used into them and they become ceramic oxide materials in, in our case so um I, I think probably the the small ones the word thin film tends to be ha- what, what yeah. gets used okay. um, and, and the fact it's um a sort of evaporated material onto a um, onto a substrate, but it doesn't scale, and, that, and that's the thing. People often say, "Well, is that how you make your? Have you simply scaled that up to make yeah. the larger format batteries?" No, we, we, it's a very expensive. Uh, there's about 200 production steps in in this thin in this tiny thin film battery. Thin film yeah. battery. We may because we also stack the batteries. We may only get 100 batteries off a six-inch wafer. Right. Um, uh, so, it, and these batteries might be giving one milliamp hour of capacity.
0: So, when you say stack them, that so presumably you you got your wafer, you're building it material, then you're dicing that into little squares, and then you're stacking the squares up. Is that right? Yes. yes uh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, ah. So you
1: thin them down so to allow because the this, the um, substrate is parasitical, it's not part of the battery, it's right. purely a carrier. So it, it, you know, a wafer might be one and a half to two millimeters thick to begin with, but we we thin them down as thin as possible really yeah we're currently about 90 microns but we're hoping to go a lot thinner than that um and then we stack them so that that increases the energy density you're not stacking parasitical materials on top of each oh, other got it, yeah um but but yes the stacking is a, a very uh, important thing to, to get enough energy storage uh but even so we're still talking about you know now sub a milliamp hour capacity and even in the future one to two milliamp hours capacity yeah um so we're relying on Electronics being uh, a lot more energy efficient, which it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Good news, that, that is true. Um, and also these batteries have a feature where they can they can hit a C-rate of 10 or, or even a peak of 20. So a 1 milliamp hour battery could actually ah, okay. power uh, uh, easily a Bluetooth device. Even the uh, LoRa device would be no problem at all. Okay. Because these devices, like a Bluetooth, is milliseconds to transmit on a radio, mm. um, but might need 2 to 3 milliamps to do so. Um, yeah. but a, a, a sort of microamp power solid state battery can easily do that so in some ways they're like a, a hybrid between a battery and a capacitor um, a super cap and a battery combined yeah. in, in, in many ways
0: That's interesting because one of the things that I often sort of think about with solid state batteries is actually they're not very good at, a, at high discharge conditions but for the micro batteries then obviously that's
1: not these are exciting and, and, and we don't know yet at what, and we'll talk in a minute about the electric vehicle batteries, what the yeah. potential might be for C-rate there. Yeah. But actually certainly on the thin film side, um, it's a very good uh, uh, outcome. You know, right. It's, uh, I say that makes it more of a hybrid component, which is, um, I think is going to be interesting. People are going to, adopt it in areas that we we can't yet imagine but we're aiming typically And the same story I guess is gonna be true on the um, on the pouch cell side is when you've got limited capacity of something which initially would be quite expensive to make you look at who might appreciate that yeah and and uh, certainly implants in the body um, uh, the volumes initially will be quite low the affordability will be quite high yeah um, and therefore it's it's a good initial market for us to to go for yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's our Stereax side and then, uh, as I said, the the UK grant, Innovate UK, Faraday Battery Challenge funded this sep- separate activity. We are probably one of the foremost or the foremost companies in the UK looking at um, uh, pouch cell related solid state batteries. Um, and, uh, this activity is now getting quite exciting, too. We we did a money raise in 2021, so only, only last year. Yeah. Uh, this was about 25 million pounds um, money raise. Um, uh, and this was, again, to take this particular technology forward through industrial stages. Um, there's, there's obviously development of the technology itself. There's mm. still at least three years of, of development of the technology. But there's also it needs to be scaled to show that it can be manufactured at reasonable points of scale. And you can't just jump to gigascale. Yeah. Um so we we start off with increasing our current facility, the one that the um, Innovate funding got us, which pretty much has got maybe sort of one kilowatt hour capacity per week. Yeah. Really lab scale. We want to get, get to early megawatt hour capacity and we're going to use the funding that we've recently got to, to get us to the me- uh, uh, low megawatt-hour capacity yep. per year. Um, then there'll be a, a subsequent point of scale taking us to hundreds of megawatt-hour capacity. <laughs> and that will be the evidence that we believe will allow gigafactories to, to say, well, yes, it can be done. Um you need these points of points of scale in between, uh, because as we know, I mean, I'm up in uh, the Newcastle area, and yesterday I, I certainly made a point of visiting the Blythe, uh facility. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it cost billions <laughs> to put together a, a gigafactory. Yeah. Um, so they they need to know the technology is working and scalable. And
0: one of the challenges that often well we, we talk about so that so a conventional battery and it sort of doesn't matter if it's a pouch cell or a cylindrical cell or whatever but the the, the production process is what we call or people talk about as reel to reel mm-hmm. so you've got these really super high speed um, enormous reels of material and the whole thing comes together so you're bringing um, the, the anode cathode separators together at very very high speed into cylindrical cells or Onto pouches, uh, forming it into the right size, and then obviously filling it with an electrolyte, which is a uh, liquid, mm-hmm. and sealing it. And then you you goes through a, a conventional battery it goes through this sort of a magic voodoo process where they bring it to life mm-hmm. um, and condition it to to um, to get get it uh, functioning properly as a as a battery. So so that it always sort of the first time I saw a plant making things like that. I, it looked like um, the, the the sort of like almost like a newsreel, you know, sort yeah, of just yeah. lots and lots of material flying around super high speed for the huge volume. But then, um, sort of transferring that to a solid state process and working out uh, how 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 the same because it, it it is scale on another level than mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. conventional battery plant. So how that solid state process will transfer to that sort of scale up scaled up process. You know, it's quite uh, it's quite hard to envisage. Mm. Um, so it'd be interesting to know what your what your steps look like in terms of being able to build um, to bu- build these larger format of batteries. You know, it's presumably not you're not depositing materials on a wafer anymore. You must have some. Oh other... no, I
1: say the wafer thing is a completely separate thing. No, I mean it, it, at our um, Goliath factory, the, the Goliath is the, the sort of. Um, brand name that we call our pouch cells okay. um uh, that's <laughs> okay. yeah. at, at lab scale in terms of as it was um created for the uh, faraday battery challenge it was silk screen um so the actual uh, depositions of the materials were that silk screen process oh, okay. we needed to be sure that we could then roll to roll which is what you're saying is these fast newsprint style processes yeah uh we actually right in the middle of the um of the covid lockdown when we d- we determined that we needed to know this um, and we tried to find some sort of UK facilities that we could work with, but in the end, we ended up working with the ULIC Institute or on a machine in, in um, a German technical institute uh, near Aachen, uh, where we did trials uh, to prove to ourselves and, and others that we could do roll to roll because it was a critical thing. Unless you can do roll to roll, you're not going to produce things in high volume. Yeah. Um, so. That was very encouraging, which allowed us now in this intermediate scale-up, the first scale-up to, to now start with in the next few weeks actually going to be buying or placing the orders for the roll-to-roll machinery oh, wow. that will operate at that level. This this isn't the giga level by any means, but yeah, I say at that level, they will be um, uh, appropriate levelled. But then it's fascinating that you, you are right. Um, the, the critical thing here is how much of the equipment in an existing gigafactory might not be relevant to a solid state? Because if hundreds of millions, if not billions, have been invested, yeah. You really don't want to say to that Gigafactory, yeah, just forget that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing it this way. Put it in the car park, guys. You, you have to <laughs> have as okay. many of the processes recognisable to these people. So again, you know, very supportive from the uh, UK government. We've worked with the ATF, uh, okay. Automotive Transformation Fund. And we've worked with a company called Comow, um, which actually maybe oh, not, okay. maybe not so many people might have heard of, but actually they're part of the fiat group who are now part of Stellantis. Um, um, So we were working with them for a year on exactly this question of what is the machine set that will be required to make mass to mass produce uh, our version of a solid state battery. Yeah. Um, And they've drawn up the facility as it will look at, I think, about sort of 200 megawatt hour scale. So the intermediate scale. And they've drawn up each machine stage, uh, what it will be, the size it needs to be, the throughput speeds it needs to have. This is a, a white paper study, but it's been a very fascinating study. They've been communicating with the machine builders as well. Um, and really looking at which of the processes are recognizable to you know people today in, in the lithium-ion battery market, which might be um, just a customization of an existing piece of machinery and which might need to be unique. Yeah. One of the unique things is, is um, sintering. Yeah. There is no sintering step in, in a lithium-ion battery, but there is a sintering step in, a, in our battery. Um, and therefore, what machinery required? I mean, tunnel ovens are well-known ways of sintering things, but we're also studying more novel ways because you yeah, we're trying to eliminate any batch processes. If, you yeah. make, if you've got a high volume, as you talked about, roll-to-roll newsprint type machine that you suddenly abruptly put the brakes on and move into a batch process. Yeah. Well, there is in a lithium-ion battery a batch process. It's called formation and aging. Uh, yeah. and actually, because of it being a batch process, it takes up a third of the entire capital, a third of the electricity, yeah. and a third of the physical space. Yeah. Um, you could, in a gigafactory, have forty to fifty million pounds worth of of, of whip sitting in this formational aging stage, which it's can take uh, twenty five or so days. Um, the magic voodoo part where they yeah. uh, bring yeah. it to life. Where they bring it to life. So <laughs> yeah. um, now, actually, we're hoping our technology will have a, a much reduced stage like that but but even okay. so we, we really don't want batch stages if at all possible yeah so this is what we've been working with um with Comau on um and then we're we're um also doing a a, a study uh, we were part of i don't think it's how i met you yourself ryan on, on tdap which yeah. is the advanced propulsion center run a series of, of um well every year actually i think they run it about 10 companies get, get awarded to operate on their business strategy and yeah. that, that's how we met you were talking at an event and you know, i met you there um, but under that, the first year is they work on your business strategy and fantastic job we've been having uh, working on that. Uh, in the second year of that program, you're allowed to work on a technical validation point. Uh, we've just passed our, in fact, last week, passed our, our second phase in terms of we're now into that second phase, right. and we're working on formation and aging. So we, we, we uh, described okay. to TDAP, um, TDAP, by the way, is technical developer, technical developers program. Um, but we described to them that we wanted to study um, this formation and aging stage to see if our version of it was a lot shorter and yeah. cheaper to run because that would be a big selling point to gigafactories. gigafactories. Yeah. Um, so we're now between now and October doing many, many experiments in our factory um, in a very structured way to look at the differences between lithium ion battery formation and aging and uh, our uh, solid state battery formation yeah. and aging. So that's a, it's going to be quite exciting to understand that result. But but anyway, we're also, and you know, you've touched on such an important issue, we, we, we get QuantumScape um, uh, leading the way in terms of uh, marketing there where they are technically. yeah But also, as you'll see, getting hit quite hard because people are very worried about industrialization. So it's yeah. great to put good data on the table. But are you sure the thing you're putting on the table is a thing that you can industrialize? And I know in recent weeks, um, Quantoscope have come under pressure because a lot of the data is relating to a single layer coupon size object yeah um we and the question is does that really translate to a fifty layer larger object and yeah. until you show us that it does, we can't really fully understand the results you're showing us, but even if you do show us it does, are you able to mass produce this thing yeah and so Maybe a slight difference of what Illica have been trying to do is work on the mass production completely alongside the development yeah. so that we don't take steps in development that won't allow for mass production. Yeah, Because otherwise you can end up with a technically very interesting object, uh, which is not mass producible. And we're yeah. very keen not to, to do that. So we're also applying for next generations of, of government funding. Uh, where we're going to keep on studying this and, and also keep on looking at the, um, the mass producibility of what we're doing. So, we've, we're really trying to do this in parallel. We, we took um, uh, a guy called Brendan McCarthy, who put the Battery Industrialization Center together. He was the operational director at the uh, the BIC. Okay, Before yeah. that, he had 40 years at BMW as plant manager around the world. Right. But we took him out of retirement and offered him a role, and he's, he's now our operational director at, uh, at ILICA. Um, and we've also just hired a new um, MPD director, new product development director, called Robin Bell, and so we're really making sure that that we are, every step we take is taken because it, it is industrializable right? If there is such a word as that. And
0: th- so, 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 sort of, if you can, in simple terms, um, for for me, the process of making a. So we, we're talking about thicker films now. So
1: yes, yeah, hundreds of microns. Yeah, yeah.
0: making a. How, you know, what does it look like? You know, what, what what is this sort of 50 layer solid state battery? What are you bringing together? How do you bring them together? How do you make a solid state battery like that?
1: Well, it, it's a um, a much thicker, I say, compared to the thin film object, but it's a much thicker, but when I say much thicker, it's still less than 200 microns thick, but <laughs> the, the cathode, you know, is is of that sort of um, order. Yeah. Um, the idea is to make the electrolyte as thin as possible. So that's a different thing you're trying to make as thin while still having a barrier okay um so yeah because you're still wanting each layer to be as thin as possible uh yeah. o- in an overall sense so you want to pack as much lithium in, into the um uh into the cathode as possible you want the separator electrolytes to be as thin as possible and then of course you get these different flavors that, that everybody is is working on quantum scape trying to work on an anodeless design yeah a design that has no anode it simply forms the anode each cycle and then reforms you're looking at companies with lithium metal uh, yeah. where they're thinking a lithium metal foil will be their, their anode. And then Ilica is of the silicon camp. You know, we're, we're saying that our anode will be um, uh, silicon. And, and our thin film batteries have got a silicon anode as well. So we've got a few more years of experience in that. Um, so, but again, you know, each uh, layer of battery, m- maybe back to the Sterex, as, as I mentioned, isn't that thick. It's just that you want 30 to 40 of them to get up to the multi amp hour pouch cell. So you're looking at an object, or we're looking at an object, which will be about 100 by 300, um, which is a, a size that the automotive industry quite likes, um, at about uh, 10 millimeters thick, um, and, and that, but that 10 millimeters will be layer upon layer, with obviously um, separation between them. Yeah. Um,
0: and 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 you mentioned electrolyte. So is is the the electrolyte a solid or semi-solid type?
1: Fully solid. Fully but solid. Again, okay. looking around the world, and there's no right and wrong answer to this because time to market is important. Revenue mm. is important. The Chinese tend to have gone for semi-solid. Uh, you've got Prologium and lion and, and a few others, and therefore they've got product coming out, and I think there's a recent release with Daimler um, yeah. uh, about that. So they will come to market first. They tend to be semi-solid products, uh, more, more polymer-based uh, products. Um, And then you've got the pure solid state people Mm -hmm. um, who will be coming to market later. And and in in those, you've got sulfides, um, uh, quite a few, half the companies, solid power, maybe uh, being an example, but about half of the companies have chosen that their electrolyte material should be a sulfide material and half have chosen an oxide material. And there's there's merits for both. The sulfides can give you a more energy rich product. um, So you're more likely to get a higher watt-hours per kilogram from that product. However, the rate of learning that the sulfide needs to have to cost in is going to be a longer journey. You know, yeah. we, we, we're in contact with the producers in, in China, typically. Mm. Uh, the producers are in China of these products, of or, or these uh, electrolyte materials. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're telling us about what you could buy at a tonnage cost now for the oxide-based electrolytes and what, what you could pay tonnage levels for the sulfide-based materials. And there's a vast difference between the two. Um, and the, the learning rate will be longer anyway on the sulfide. So it does lend itself to the fact that sulfide-based solid-state batteries might come to market somewhat after the oxide-based ones. Um, uh, but also, in our view, the sulfide has, has issues of handling. Yeah, we always intended to manufacture in the UK, and it's quite a, um, a material to handle the sulfide-based. It has side reactions and reactions with, um, with the atmosphere. You'd have to keep your factory um, at a very, very low dew point, yeah. Um, and, and therefore it's a much more expensive environment to be working in. The outcomes can be worse in terms of the, the side reactions can be worse. Yeah. So we, we just, uh, you know, actually we did some work on it but we, you know, in the early days, but we decided oxide for us, if we're likely to manufacture in the UK, we'd like materials that the UK people would like to work with yeah. um, and, uh, and environments that uh, are better working environments so uh yeah, yeah we're, we're heading down the oxide route, route ourselves. I remember
0: having uh in a past life some quite big problems with uh sulfur migration into uh, some electronic components which basically ruined them um and so just like the, the sort of life cycle side of it uh the it was a particular component was giving off uh, sulfur uh, and then and that was finding its way into i don't know it was now it was some Basically, yeah. A, yeah. A, a shunt resistor on something where the value of that resistor was being subst- substantially um, altered uh, by the absorption of uh, of sulfur over, over quite a long period of time. So imagine those sort of degradation mechanisms inside a battery cell would be quite critical, actually.
1: Well, we, we're looking really at, at the raw materials coming into a factory being handled within that factory. There could mm. be some side reactions with, with moisture that, that could cause yeah. uh, acidic sort of outcomes. Um, I think quite, quite rightly, the battery industry would say that once it's contained in a module in a pack, mm. um, you know, it, there's no real discussion about safety there because actually people are driving around in cars full of pet- petrol and fuel. Yeah. You know, so you know, that's not exactly safe either. Yeah. Um, and yet it's been made safe by, by the quality of the containment. Um, so, you know, the, the, the OEM or the battery pack provider will make whatever it is safe. Yeah, you know, if they didn't, they wouldn't be in business, and they wouldn't be allowed to put it on the market. So they don't yeah. like to have that conversation about it. Um, however, um, in transportation and storage, uh, before it goes on logistically, you know, if you if you had to make batteries that you then had to ship into a warehouse and put onto a ship, etc., again, it's not yet necessarily fully been made safe. It maybe is at cell level by this point, not yet in a modular or a pack. Yeah, um, uh, you'd want it to be a safer outcome and an oxide is a safer outcome. Yeah. But I say once these things, whichever chemistry set gets used, once it goes into a car, by definition it will have been made safe and contained.
0: In a, in a conventional battery, a lot of the issues with safety come around from the electrolyte, you know, gets to a point where it starts to break down and then kind of exotherms and, you know, but when it- Yeah, the
1: thermal runaway effect. A very difficult,
0: yeah. with a conventional liquid, Um, electrolyte, and a lot to do with the solvents that are used in in those to make them liquids in the first Mm place. Is that issue or that sort of issue completely gone with a solid state or...
1: Yes, I'm not sure it's on our, it probably is on our LinkedIn page if you go to a looker. We've got a nice picture of somebody using a pair of scissors to cut a cell in half while the cell still works. So okay. the cell is powering something Yeah, and then we just cut it in half and it's still powering something. Nobody blew up, nobody died in that experiment. Um, so oh, wow, yeah, okay. that's a, a nice way of showing safety. Um, yeah. I think the same person also rolls the cell up into a tight little roll just to show the flexibility of the roll to roll. Yeah. Um, so you know, yes, there's, there's a, and then also we've got, I haven't yet um, put them on the website, but we've got uh uh, we've heated the whole thing up to 85 degrees, uh, which a, a normal cell really wouldn't like. You know, you're yeah. n- normally, you're trying to keep um, cells at 40 to 50 degrees or yeah. even less than that. But we've taken the cell up to 85 degrees to show. Now, we'll, we'll keep on pushing that to see where that point of breakdown might be. But there won't yeah. be the thermal runaway because, you know, as we know from our StereoX batteries, on our StereoX batteries, by the way, we can take them to 150. Um, right. The reason we're stopping at 85 so far on the Goliath battery is the pouch. Okay. We, we haven't designed a pouch, you know, which goes to high temperature. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but we need to do some studies on what happens to the, the the materials inside the pouch. But it'd be helpful to do that when we've actually got a pouch that we know survives. Yeah. Um, so I think it will be a, a very interesting area of study to see the, yeah. how these things work at high temperature.
0: And I, I imagine. So just sort of, my take would be the so the the, the thin film cells because you're depositing thin films actually things like differential thermal expansion and stuff become insignificant problems Mm -hmm. because you've got very, um, small, uh, layer thicknesses. So actually it it can all kind of comply together. When you go up into a larger format cell, I sort of understood again, an an issue with solid state was, uh, essentially sort of stress between the layers and cracking and issues like that happening. Um, what, what of is that a, Still a problem, or is that something that you've managed to solve somehow? Like that, the sort of, and particularly you're talking about being able to run to higher temperatures, which would be really useful in a battery pack. Actually, to to be able to operate even slightly higher temperatures than the current pack um, could get away from. There's a huge amount of equipment needed on an EV to keep the the pack at it its sweet spot, um, subcooling and chilling, and all this sort of stuff. So, absolutely, could see a. a, a slight increase even in, in operating temperature would be really appreciated by the industry. But then how, how are you managing the, the thermals inside the pack then and um, sort of th- those differential expansions and things between those still thin but thicker uh, sheets of material? How, how does that play out?
1: Well, for, for us, we're still... Ourselves at the single layer stage, and we now over the next one to two years uh, are going to start stacking. But you're, you're absolutely right. If we're particularly using a silicon anode, mm. we need to um, understand the issues of, of expansion in the in the anode. That will be an issue. Uh, people are using sort of um, uh, carbon nanotubes and, and and look at the morphology of the of the silicon, so that it, it's how it compresses and where it compresses and does it compress down into the battery or does it go upwards. Mm. Um, uh, but the results will only come from actually doing. Um, yeah, we can model it and we can simulate it the, the real results only come from actually doing it and we're not yeah. yet at that uh, at that stage and the you know, the question we always often get asked is what level of compression do you want to keep the whole thing at in the first place um, yeah. now so far the results we're showing are with an uncompressed battery we don't yet compress our battery we don't have a need so far okay. but that's not to say that it won't at, you know, <laughs> when we start yeah. stacking 10, 15, 20 layers uh, there will be a lot to learn about expansion and compression um, right. so th- this is uh, what would be happening over the next two years of our NPD program, our new product development program, yeah. uh, is to is to get to these points and then to understand them and then work out whether we need to yeah. work around them or whether we uh, don't, and that that's a key thing.
0: So people might not, pe- people in the battery industry would know this, but people outside the battery industry might not realize but a, a pouch cell, which is sort of a semi-flexible uh, thing, when when you build that into a module, actually you do, you create the module in such a way that it applies a pressure um, to the services of the, the cell. So this is a conventional battery. So it's already part of uh, battery pack design today is this uh, sort of pressure. And it's quite a key uh, factor in the design of the pack, being able to manage a uh, consistent pressure across a conventional battery cell as it expands and, and contracts in operation with temperature and state of charge and stuff like that. So it's, um, it's, it's actually, it looks quite simple, a module, battery module, but actually when you get into it, maintaining that on a conventional battery system is really difficult uh, in practice. Part of the reason why some people prefer cylindrical cells is it's built into the cell, then you don't have to worry about it. Um, But if if you could get away
1: from that kind of thing, that would be uh,
0: a a huge result. Um, Which is the
1: next generation, as I said, of of grant funding uh, happening um, under APC, this is APC20. But we we have put a collaboration team together with three tier ones and and OEM. a lot of it is to look at this. Um, uh, we, we've got sort of people involved in cooling systems, people involved in battery pack development, and that's what their aspect will be: is take cells from us and, and test out these um, uh, outcomes and see. The, the word in 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 pack development is uh, gravimetric cell to pack ratio, which effectively means how much of the um, uh, battery uh, or the, how much of the chemistry in, in relation to the, the the overall battery system, and. I think BYD sort of um, rocked the world about uh, a year or two ago by getting very, you know, they basically got rid of modules and went straight from cell to pack and ended up with, you know, late 80%, 85%, 90% cell to to pack ratio. And and what destroys that is um, safety packaging, um, thermal packaging, as you say, to keep keep the cells at the right temperature, to keep them doing thermal runaway. Um, All of these are parasitical. And and um, you know they they basically reduce that gravimetric cell to pack ratio, and you know, people are fighting hard at cell level to get you know, a certain number of watt hours per kilogram to throw it all the way at pack level. Yeah. So um, as this new trend towards LFP has shown us, is that um, if you have something that's more inherently safe, you may lose it at cell level, but gain it back at pack level, yeah. and, and that's effectively what BYD did um is they sort of show, showed this sort of uh, it's not as important as people thought to get the optimum or ultimate sell it's more important to worry about what's happening at the pack
0: yeah as as, as ever in life the sort of system level thinking being uh, really critical yeah 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 ah, fantastic so so just then to to sort of bring us to a close that's been absolutely fascinating i've, I've learned a lot about um, what you guys are doing and 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 the industry in general what, what, what's coming for you? Um, what are you excited about in the next uh, next year or two that's, uh, that's, that's coming down, down the line?
1: Well, it, it's a fascinating job. Back to why would a physicist want to go into this you know, business development, techie product type, uh, type job. But uh, on the one hand, two weeks ago, I was at the Neurological Society of America conference speaking to surgeons about uh, implants into the body. Yeah. And actually, in about two months' time, I'll be at a smart orthopedic show, and then after that, I'll be at um, uh, smart contact lenses where we're looking at um, virtual reality, artificial reality, putting batteries into contact lenses. Oh, wow. uh, in the last week, I've, I've spoken to Meta, I've spoken to Apple, I've spoken to Samsung. You know, so you, you're actually working with companies who are going to invent the future. Mm. Um, and, and that's a fascinating area of business to be in. Yeah. Um, so that's on the, the micro battery side. Um, On the the large format batteries, we've got, you know, roll our sleeves up, two half years of of product development to do, Um, but running completely alongside it, um, a a, a manufacturing scale up where we're going to try and run both of them in parallel. So there won't be many quiet moments. It's it's going to be um, uh, a busy time, but it is nice working in a sector where you're on topic. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't get more in the press about, you know, going green and, and um, yeah. you know, getting rid of uh, internal combustion engines, et cetera. So you're, you're always working in an area where, you know, actually, weirdly, for once, often when you used to go to a party and people said, what do you do? I work in sales. They used to, you know, walk away. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. You know, yeah, he's yeah. a salesman um but actually for once in my life i'm a salesman in the right place at the right time yeah. um when so the people kind of understand yeah well yeah. they want to know yeah. they, they do oh so is my car going to have more range or can i charge it faster and yeah these are you know these are topics that a lot of people i know are actually waiting for the, they're not buying the battery car um yeah. because there is a slight well, more than a slight issue that not that many charge points is one of the issues but yeah. Um, but yeah they are worried about range um and uh they'll only really be comfortable about about range when it begins to come in line with their petrol tank. Yeah. Um, They, they get, they understand their petrol tank is going to get them two to 300 miles. Yeah. Um, This idea that my car might only get me 150. It's a worry.
0: Yeah. I, I I, I can see, um, I mean, there's so much going on for Ilica um, and, you know, absolutely fantastic to see this sort of stuff in the UK. Even I think, you know, if, if I'd have thought about where the, the center of gravity was on solid-state batteries and, and who was a more advanced player on this until I met you, actually, I wouldn't have thought that being in the UK. So it is fantastic to see. Actually, there's a, a few things on the story. You know, you're a university spin-out, effectively, that's now absolutely going gangbusters and a real success story in terms of raising uh, you know money on the public markets and stuff. But then, um, you know, actually, at a really uh, advanced stage, kind of leading the way on solid state battery developments globally when there's a lot of noise from from other parts of the world and uh, seems like you guys have just been quietly
1: getting on with this and uh... it is interesting that that's, I mean, some companies like Quantascape with their IPO maybe had to make the noise. that's that's mm-hmm. part of it. and and having got such a high price for their IPO, maybe felt obliged to keep on making that noise because they've got a lot of investors to keep informed. Yeah, um, it, it is really dependent on the company. There's an awful lot happening actually in existing battery companies where you're hearing nothing about it because mm. there's no need for them to tell people. Yeah. Or within Toyota, we know Toyota are working on solid state batteries, but actually they're Toyota, so there's no need to tell people what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So I think you know the noise is coming from a relatively small number of companies compared to the number of companies that are working on things. Oh, right, but okay. you do have to be careful to if you do make the noise, you do stick your head above the parapet. Uh, we've got existing very supportive shareholders. The UK government, uh, via its funds, is being very supportive. I think us overhyping things too early on isn't going to help. Yeah, There is a long journey to go. Um, I think most companies now in the area of solid state are saying nothing before 2025. If things do occur after that, it's likely to be supercar, hypercar uh, right. for affordability purposes and also to get things onto a vehicle um so really nothing on a passenger car till you know the end of the decade yeah so it yeah that's a bit of a marathon not a sprint if you start making noises now you'll run out of things to say quite quickly (laughs) um you know so i I think as long as it's going well we're getting support from the government getting support from our investors our best bet is to say what we're going to do and do it um if we over egg it if we say too much we'll create too much of a hype Um, and that's just probably not going to be helpful
0: Oh, fantastic! It's, it's it's really fantastic, and it, it's great to to, to learn all of this and see all of this. And uh, hopefully, um, we'll stay in touch. and um, I, I can feel a a, a, a follow on episode in a, a year or two's time uh, when there's um, a bit more to talk about on the uh, particularly the large format batteries. And I really hope to see some of those. Um, micro batteries out in the in the market in the not too distant future so brilliant thanks a lot john thank
1: you very much i'd I'd actually love to be here in two or three years time as you say talking about things inside the body or uh, whatever has gone on next but really a pleasure to be on your program
0: brilliant thank you